Burn the Boats is proud to support Vote Vets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. What we are doing is using every tool at our disposal to make sure that America wakes up to this threat before there is a cataclysmic attack. Because we all know that America will do the right thing after there's a huge attack. What we are trying to do is actually the hardest thing to do in, in politics and the hardest thing to do in government, which is to establish a sense of urgency before the crisis. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. Today, I'm talking to Max Rose, U.S. Representative for New York's 11th Congressional District, and Ali Soufan, former FBI agent and counterterrorism expert. This spring, Max and Ali co-wrote a New York Times op-ed titled, We Once Fought Jihadists, Now We Battle White Supremacists. They came on the show together to talk about the work they're doing to address the threat of transnational violent white supremacist groups in the United States and across the world. All three of us joined the call from our homes where we are still recording the show due to the ongoing pandemic. The sound quality suffers accordingly at times, but the conversation is well worth it. Max Rose, Ali Sufan, welcome to Burn the Boats. Ali, you're a former FBI agent. You served as an interrogator on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and you're the author of a couple of books about al-Qaeda. You are also the lead investigator of the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen, which killed 17 of my fellow sailors. And now you've turned your sights on the threat of white supremacists in America. And Max, you're a member of Congress, decorated army officer, wounded in Afghanistan on the front lines of a war, which no doubt the intelligence supplied by some of Ali's interrogations played a role in. And now you have been personally targeted by white supremacists. I'd like to start by asking how you two met and joined forces to help meet this threat. Ali, give me your version. Well, I um, was testifying uh, in Congress, and Congressman Rose uh, was a member of the Homeland Security Committee. And uh, after the hearing, we uh, started to talk to each other, and we realized that uh, there was a lot of things uh, can be done in order to bring more awareness to the threat. So we started to develop a professional relationship that led into a friendship. And uh, at one point, uh, we uh, authored an op-ed together in the New York Times. That op-ed really upset a lot of people, all bad guys, thankfully. One American group called The Base, which means literally Al-Qaeda, did a recruitment video with footage of our faces intercut with uh, shots of masked men machine gunning a spray painted uh, Star of David. The Scandinavian based uh, terrorist group, the Nordic Resistance Movement, they called us uh, by name, referring to us in uh, one of the recent statements as the Jew Max Rose and the Arab FBI agent Ali Sufan. But they are not racist in any way, shape, or form. They're just putting facts. And a lot of white supremacists uh, from around the globe were really upset about us working together. And Max spearheaded the fight to start designate some of these groups as terrorist organizations. And he uh, was extremely successful recently 
uh, with uh, forcing the State Department's hand to designate RIM, Russian Imperial Movement, as a neo-Nazi organization, as a specially designated terrorist group. And this is the very first time in our history that the U.S. government designated a white supremacist organization as a terrorist organization. So, you know, we have a lot to be thankful for, Max, and uh, all the great work that uh, he's doing. That op-ed clearly, as Ali put it, upset a lot of bad guys, but it also shocked a lot of Americans, raising the specter of homegrown white supremacist organization targeting Americans with the assistance of foreign agents and and foreign organizations. Why has this country, uh, not only the public, but law enforcement establishment, been slow to recognize this threat the same way it has recognized the threat of other extremist movements? Yeah, so first of all, let me let me just say how much of an honor it has been to get to know Ali, who I thought was a legend before I even had the chance to, to meet him throughout this process. And what we are doing is using every tool at our disposal to make sure that America wakes up to this threat before there is a cataclysmic attack. Because we all know that America will do the right thing after there's a huge attack. What we are trying to do is actually the hardest thing to do in, in politics and the hardest thing to do in government, which is to establish a sense of urgency before the crisis. And in that manner, we are very intentionally, but I think correctly framing this as a threat that the American people should actually, and the government should be very familiar with. Because these domestic white extremist organizations first off, are not domestic in any way, shape, and form, and have mirrored themselves, built themselves, based off of the jihadist threat. Why else would the base call themselves al-Qaeda? Why else would they establish this very strong connection with these global organizations to include the movement of money, information, recruiting, and human beings? So it has been that framing that I hope wakes up the American people, because we don't want them to be woken up after a significant attack. You know, if Ali hadn't become such a prima donna in his old age, I wouldn't have had to inject myself into this situation. He could have just done this himself. But, you know, you, you're, you're a legend for so many years. Sometimes the upstart has to step in and kind of, you know, push him along a little bit. Well, Ali, you have said that you feel that 9-11 could have been prevented. And by implication, we are living through an era right now where the next attack is around the corner but from a wholly different set of organizations. What aren't we doing now that we should be? When you look back on the mistakes that were made, the information you did not receive that you feel like the FBI should have received in the run-up to 9-11, where are we right now? Are we in the mid-90s with the rise of Al-Qaeda, or are we you know, in January of 2001. I think we are probably in the 90s. We start seeing white supremacist organizations, as Max mentioned, operate in similar fashions to the jihadi terrorist organizations that we dealt with at the time, Al-Qaeda, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, you know, all these different groups. And now we see these uh, white supremacy groups transcending any national barriers, um, the way they recruit, the way they disseminate their propaganda, exactly like the jihadis 
exploited, for example, conflicts in Afghanistan or in the Balkans or in Syria now, in Iraq, these white supremacist groups also are using uh, the conflict in the Ukraine as a lab and as a training ground for them. We see the effects of these global connections here at our homeland. Since 9-11, for example, white supremacist and far-right terrorist extremists, if you want to call them, uh, they killed more people on American soils than jihadis. 2018, uh, I think, was uh, the worst for far-right violence since Timothy McVeigh's Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And we don't have the numbers from 2019 yet. So there's a lot of similarities going on with the way they operate, with the way they link together with other groups internationally, the formed alliances, ideologues, for example, Similar to the global jihadi movement, violent uh, white supremacists have ideologue that radicalize individuals from around the globe, including U.S. nationals. Some of these ideologues play a role in the white supremacy movement, very similar to uh, jihadist ideologue played in the Islamic terrorism movement. People like Anwar al-Awlaki, for example, was to the jihadis very similar to how Jared Taylor or Craig Johnson or Kevin McDonald or Richard Spencer is for the white supremacist movement. And those guys, they travel around the world. They go to Scandinavian countries, European countries, you go to the Ukraine, and they give lectures about uh, white supremacy and about neo-Nazi ideology and try to recruit people into the movement. Last year, Russell Travers, former acting director of uh, the National Counterterrorism Center, he told an audience in Washington, D.C. that America now is being seen as exporter of white supremacist ideology. We've been seeing exactly the word was seeing Saudi Arabia as an exporter of radical Islam and Wahhabism. Wow. That's how we're being seen because most of these ideologues that go around the world and recruit people and convince them to conduct terrorist attacks are U.S. citizens. And they are based in the U.S. And that's why it's extremely important what Max is leading in Congress to take that threat and show it to the American people. Explain it to the American people. What we did in 9-11, we operate through within the system. People in the CIA and the FBI, we knew that there was a threat. We were fighting this threat during the Millennium Operation in Jordan or after the East Africa Embassy bombing or in operations, countering terrorism operations in Albania, in England, in Germany, you name it. We're in the forefronts of the fight in Pakistan and Afghanistan. But everything was within the system and nobody had the courage to explain to the American people that there is this guy, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda network, and they are really bad, and they are trying to do something bad for America. Nobody had the courage to explain the threat and articulate it, to the point that when the Bush administration was elected, there was a big division inside the administration if they should recognize the threat of terrorism from the jihadis as a really threat. You know, remember, people were focusing more on Monica Lewinsky and her blue dress than on terrorism, and they thought this is kind of a wag the dog kind of thing. So we start believing politicians' press clipping other than the facts that we're getting from the intelligence community. And I think we are in the same position with the white supremacy today. The parallels are, are indeed frightening, but many Americans, I think, can be forgiven for not taking it 
incredibly seriously. And I want to put this question to you, Max, as a soldier, when you look at these clowns in their Hawaiian shirts, the Boogaloo Boys, they look like they're playing games. They're in costumes. And there's an element of farce, it appears, to the most outspoken elements of the white supremacist movement. I mean, it's terrifying in that they're carrying black rifles and they're there to intimidate. But a lot of my military buddies in particular laugh at these clowns. What's your thought when you see them on the Capitol steps and they're really making fools of themselves in the eyes of most Americans, but in the back of your mind, you know that they are the tip of the iceberg? So let's also remember that it was 19 or so individuals with box cutters who killed 3,000 Americans. So this is not a competition of resources. As H.R. McMaster, I think very correctly said, you either fight America asymmetrically or stupidly. And I, I believe that these folks are smart enough to understand that they would engage in asymmetric warfare. But let's lay out the facts that should startle the American people, even your tough guy buddies from the military. Um, <laughs> I was in the Navy. You got yeah, tough guy buddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, how many Navy SEALs does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> One to four, one to screw in the light bulb and three to write books about it. But um, <laughs> I was never cool enough to be a SEAL. I have to, I'm too insecure, so I just got to make jokes about them. So look, go back to the attack in New Zealand, 51 Muslims killed in a mosque. The entire mass attack is live streamed by someone who trained with the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, wore the insignia, had significant interactions with them. So then you have the conflict in Crimea with the Azov Battalion on one side, formerly an extremist group integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard upon the Russian invasion of Crimea. And then on the Russian side, the Russian Imperial Movement, now especially designated terrorist group, by the United States, the first time a white extremist organization has been designated as such. Over 20,000 foreign fighters have gone to fight in that conflict from over 50 different countries. That is more than double the number of foreign fighters that went to go fight with the Mujahideen during the height of the Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan in the 80s. Moved to Central Europe, Nordic Resistance Front. Again, a terrorist group designated as such by multiple Central European nations have killed multiple people. Move on. National Action, Sonnenkrieg in the UK, also have killed people, also have attempted to kill people and engage in terrorist attacks. Sonnenkrieg is actually an offshoot of an American terrorist organization called Atomwaffen. Move on to Canada, Combat 18. Again, a designated terrorist organization by Canada who has killed people. Members of their organization have traveled on multiple times to train with and support American terrorist organizations, such as the base. Recently, that occurred. All of these organizations, as well as more, like Rahm, who has killed people in Southern California, as well as the leaders of Charlottesville, have had active coordinations, in-person meetings, as well as the movement of money and guidance with all of this global network. So the global network exists, and they have blood on their hands. If that doesn't scare you, then you have your head in the sand. But you're very correct that we haven't seen the large-scale attack yet, although they have killed people. More people, may I add, than the jihadist threat has killed in recent years. But what would that attack look like? 
it may not look like 9-11. It might look like Oklahoma City, but it also could look like small arms attacks in 10 cities all happening at the same time. It could look like a cyber attack coordinated with a small arms attack on a healthcare institution. It could look like inciting racial violence, tearing apart America. It could look like a whole assortment of things. But to not be cognizant of and wary of this threat, I think, is not be rooted in reality. Ali, do you think that the extremist elements we've seen take part in some of these anti-shutdown protests or the extremist elements, period, whether they're being provocative or not, are being treated differently, perhaps more leniently by law enforcement as compared to, say, Islamic extremists? Well, it's a very difficult question to answer because I think law enforcement and the FBI have taken this threat extremely seriously. But the problem is they don't have the tools available under their fingertips that they use, for example, against jihadis or international terrorist organizations. These tools are not available. You mean legal tools? Legal tools, yeah. So a lot of people say, oh, well, if this guy was a Muslim or his name is Muhammad, then you know the FBI will treat this case differently. And it is true, but not based on the name or on the race, based on the legal designation. So for example, we don't have a domestic terrorism legislation in the United States. We do not have penalties really associated with domestic terrorism. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Timothy McVeigh in 1995, Oklahoma City bombing. You know, Timothy McVeigh blew up a whole federal building, killing so many people, right? The biggest terrorist attack on American soil before 9-11. And, you know, we could not charge him with terrorism charges. We charge him with murder because it's very difficult to prove domestic terrorism because there's no legislation. So what's happening, a lot of people are being arrested. They are arrested with weapons. They are arrested with explosives by the FBI. And because there is no body, because they didn't kill an individual or the FBI stopped them on the way to commit the terrorist attack, they are protected by the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. So in the First Amendment, they have the right to go on Facebook and say, I want to kill all the Jews, I want to kill all the immigrants, I want to kill all the blacks. That's protected speech. The Second Amendment, protecting the fact that they were carrying weapons when they were stopped. So this is a problem. And this is why we decided to figure out a way. How can we give tools to people on the front line in order to protect our communities? But a lot of these guys are really evil and they are operating very similar to how the jihadis are. Max mentioned Armwafen Division, for example, and its connection to one group in the UK. They established affiliates, inspired groups in over a dozen countries in the Western world where they planned or they actually carried out acts of violence. U.S. members of the Ottoman division, they travel to promote their evil narrative. These are U.S. groups that operate exactly like Al-Qaeda, exactly like ISIS. They have affiliates around the world. They are using social media to recruit. They are using the conspiratorial narrative against Jews and against anybody who doesn't look like them or believe like them. They are trying to fight for the purity of the race like the jihadis wanted to fight for the purity of their religion. When they conduct a terrorist attack, they lionize that individual and they put all this propaganda about them exactly like the jihadis do with martyrdom videos. So this is actually a real threat that we're dealing with. Absolutely. Now, there is one difference, though, and I think this is stark. If someone is an adherent of ISIS, they collaborate with ISIS, and they are a Texas resident, 
and they go out and they legally buy an AR-15. They go out and they legally buy 40 magazines. They go out and they legally buy a kit and they legally buy 5,000 rounds of ammunition. We can arrest that person, you know, material support to a terrorist organization and lock them up before they kill people. Now, another Texas resident becomes a member of Atomwaffen or the base and communicates with RIM and Azov and Nordic Resistance and Combat 18, constantly, constantly communicates with them, buys the same amount of ammunition, the same weapons, the same kit. We do not have a charge for that person until they start killing people. That's insane. That's insane. And that's got to be fixed. So, Max, you're, you're the lawmaker. What's the status of any legislative efforts in Congress? I know you've got the Transnational White Supremacist Extremism Review Act. Is there anything else uh, trying to fix this? So let's simplify this a little bit here. You know, there's two things that you can do for these domestic terrorist organizations, and they are terrorist organizations by every sense of the word. The first is that you can create a domestic terrorist designation. And that is rift with all types of ideological debates that are, you know, legitimate. I think it will take a generation for us to get to the bottom of whether or not in America we should have a domestic terrorism charge. The second thing that you can do is you can update the list of foreign terrorist organizations. Now, in order for an entity to be labeled a foreign terrorist organization, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, there's 61 of them. That's executive action. The State Department just does it. Now they have a thorough review process and so on and so forth, and it has to be renewed every five years, and Congress plays a role, but it does not require legislation. Now, for some reason, this administration has, and every other previous administration before it, has been unwilling to do that. Now, why is the FTO designation so important? Well, we've already established through this conversation that these domestic organizations are not domestic at all. They're global. They are connected to the global organizations that we just listed. So when they put out videos, as they have, burning the U.S. flag, burning the Israeli flag, holding AR-15s, wearing masks, mimicking Jihadi John, saying that they're going to kill Ali Sufan, saying that they're going to kill Max Rose, we could immediately charge them with providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization if any one of these organizations that we just listed abroad were actually listed as FTOs. None of them have. And this is scary beyond just not being able to charge these organizations with providing material support. It's scary in the fact that we do not fully understand the threat that we face. All of the analyses that we've presented to you thus far are based off of tangential research. We have not been able to unleash the full power of the CIA in terms of addressing this because we're not labeling any of these organizations as foreign terrorist organizations. We cannot tell you today how many Americans have gone to fight with them. We can guess. We can't tell you for sure. We cannot tell you today how many Americans are supporting these organizations with foreign money and vice versa. How many foreigners are coming to America? How many foreigners are sending money to America? We can't tell you for sure what their social media presence is, nor can we clamp down upon it. We will not fully know the threat that we face until we follow through with these designations. So there's certainly legislation that we are pushing to establish the intelligence community, to push them to mandate that they study this. There are resolutions that we are pushing, and they are bipartisan, by the way, to say that it is the belief of Congress that these organizations should be labeled as FTOs. But the administration has to do the right thing. I don't believe that until 
They label these organizations as foreign terrorist organizations. You can't say that you're tough on terrorism. Now, they did label the Russian imperial movement as a specially designated terrorist group. There's about 1,000 STDGs, and that is a good step. It's the first time that a white extremist organization has been labeled as that. But we will not be satisfied until they update the FTO list. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Ali, you are one of our country's foremost experts on extremism, but in particular, Al-Qaeda and Islamic extremism. You've been in the room with people who have uh, planned and engineered the deaths of many, many Americans. I'm wondering how you apply that experience to this in trying to understand the driving forces, the psychological forces behind white fanaticism? Is there a religious element? In the case of Al-Qaeda, it was grievance-driven. There were the three prongs, the occupation of the Holy Lands, the liberation of Palestine. What is the ideological underpinning or the conspiracy mindset, you tell me, that drives the larger movement? Well, actually, the, the ideological underpinning basically existed way before the Shihais were able to put their stuff together. Uh, you know, you, we had the Nazis, we have this, you know, idea that some races are better than others. So you have this conspiracy theories that the Jews control the world. So a lot of it, it already exists. But their ideology is basically, you know, the jihadis, they wanted Armageddon. They are fighting for Armageddon because Armageddon, there will be a big battle between everyone, between all the religion. That's what they are looking for. With these guys, they have uh, the accelerationist theory. Basically, they want to accelerate uh, racial tension, accelerate war, create racial war in order to destroy the current world order or social order that exists in different European countries, bring back the purity of the race, and they base it on the Nazi ideology, the racial narratives, the significant history of anti-Semitism throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, and uh, they use it as the underpinning of their war and of their ideology. So there's a lot of similarities when it comes to the ideology. And guess what? Some groups in the white supremacist movement, they call it white jihad. And some groups, even though they are so white supremacists, they actually like a group like Hezbollah. So that gives you an idea about the anti-Semitic narratives that actually empower these guys very much similar to people like Hezbollah or, or other groups. So we need to start paying attention to this. Let me just also say this. It is clear as day that if the intelligence community and the law enforcement community listened to Ali in the run-up to 9-11, there's a very good chance that 9-11 would not have happened. Very rarely in life do we get a second chance to not make the same exact mistake again. Well, here Ali Sufan is saying that we are back in the mid-90s again, looking at the formation of a new global terrorist movement. Let's not make the same mistake again. Max, can you talk about the tension, though, between wanting to keep Americans safe 
and upholding as, as a fundamental American value the right to protest and the right to free speech. I'm thinking about the recent presidential declaration to describe Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization. Well, but the thing about that, that was a totally political statement. There is no domestic terrorist designation. That was the president tweeting in his pajamas in his room like a teenager with no knowledge of national or international law. That was nothing. That was just a, a random tweet that has zero follow-up. Zero. Yeah, I 100% agree with my friend here. And let me tell you, the president tweeted at one point that he wanted to declare the cartel as a terrorist organization. Did he declare the cartel as a terrorist organization? No, because he can't. You know, can you tell me who's the head of Antifa? I can tell you who's the head of Autumn Waffen. I can tell you who's the head of uh, the base. I can tell you these guys. I can tell you how they operate. I can tell you the organization and how it's structured. I can name the affiliates for you, how they raise funds, how they recruit people. I can tell you all these things. These are really terrorist organizations. But can you just give me who is the leader of Antifa? This is not terrorism. This is anarchy, criminal. This is a state on local issue. And, and Ken, let me say this about your question, okay? You're making this far more complicated than it needs to be. Go back to that video where they're mimicking Jihadi John, right? And they're burning the U.S. flag and they're threatening Ali's life, threatening my own, threatening my colleagues' lives, saying that we need to bring death and destruction to the kike revolution and to the United States of America. If at the end of that video, they had said, all praise be to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, boom, they're locked up for 30 years providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization. So this right now has nothing to do with the Constitution. We've established the law. We've established a system for how we're going to crack down on terrorists. Right now, what we're discussing is, are all terrorists to be treated equally? Or is it just the ones that are jihadists that have allegiance to traditionally Islamic organizations? Or is all terrorism terrorism. These are global terrorist organizations, and we have just got to expand our system to address them as well. This has nothing to do with people's right to peacefully congregate. This has nothing to do with people, people's right to the First Amendment, but there is zero right to engage in terrorist coordinations, to take part in a terrorist organization, to plan terrorist attacks, or to express support for terrorist organizations. That is not protected by the Constitution, no way, shape, or form. You are confident, Max, you first as the congressman, that the legal guardrails exist to prevent the abuse of any terrorist designation that the 61 organizations you mentioned that have been declared terrorist organizations have had to meet specific criteria that do not include a midnight tweet from the president, that we are are safe from the kind of overreach that would jeopardize our First Amendment rights. Absolutely. The question now is, are we willing to apply the tools that we have equally? If you want to start to talk about a domestic terrorist designation, then we start to get into some of these questions. But what we are purposefully trying to say is that as it pertains to the threat of white extremist terrorist organizations based in the United States of America, that debate and conversation is not yet necessary because they are part and parcel of a global movement, just like there are members of ISIS and al-Qaeda, or at least sympathizers to ISIS and al-Qaeda in the United States of America today. We don't talk about the need for a domestic terrorist designation for them. This is no different. So what my fear is, is that we are paralyzing ourselves with a 
theoretical debate right now that is not necessary. And all the while, we're allowing these organizations to continue to grow, continue to organize, continue to openly flaunt their desire to inflict violence upon Americans, and we are not doing anything. Well, you know, these people, I mean, just they talk about they want to kill immigrants. They want to start race wars. They want to accelerate history and have a big clash that end up with getting rid of anyone who's not purely white. So we're not talking about you have the right to hate or you have the right to, you know, don't like Mexicans or don't like Muslims or don't like Arabs or don't like Jews. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about individuals and entities and groups that's organizing on a transnational level, right, with the main goal to bring down the world order and put together a Hitler-type world order, right? So what are we waiting for? You know, a lot of people think Al-Qaeda just started on 9-11. No, my friend, Al-Qaeda started in 1989, and they continued to build their organization and their structure and, and fix it. And, and, and they ended up on the eve of 9-11 with the organization that we, you know, destroyed the way it exists, but now it morphed into another monster that have way more people today than Al-Qaeda had back on the eve of 9-11. On the eve of 9-11, the people who pledged Bayah, oath of allegiance to Osama bin Laden, were about 400. Today, Al-Qaeda alone, I'm not mentioning ISIS, which is a break away from Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda alone have more than 40,000 fighters across the Muslim world. They are not only in Kandahar and in Kabul, they are also in Idlib in Syria, they are in Somalia, they are in Sahel region, the whole area of Sahel region. They are in, in Libya. They are in Yemen. Uh, before the Saudi war in Yemen, Al-Qaeda were about 700, AQAP, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. Today, AQAP is more than 8,000 people. So, uh, you know, we're not paying attention to this either. The threat level, the terrorism level, both from the Islamic extremists and from the white supremacists, evolved in a way that needs the attention of the national security apparatus and the politicians here in the United States. Otherwise, we're asking for trouble. I want to pan out just a little bit and see if I can get a much deeper historical perspective on white supremacy in America. And this is provoked, Max, by the letter that you just wrote to Secretary Esper uh, stating that U.S. military bases and property should be named after men and women who've served our nation with honor and distinction, not sought to tear it apart to uphold white supremacy. It probably goes without saying, but what are the connections between the modern white supremacist movement and fidelity to the Confederate ideals? Yeah, so look, let me first just say something about the Confederate monuments and things like that. I have a federal army base in my district with one street named after Robert E. Lee. And it is my belief that Robert E. Lee was not a patriot. He was a traitor with not only the blood of Americans on his hands, but the blood of New Yorkers on his hands. And he was also a virulent racist that believed that black people should be enslaved. So he should not be honored. We have plenty of incredible public servants who paid the ultimate sacrifice who should be honored. Now, with that being said, though, as we look at this white nationalist terrorist threat. It is really, really important that we do not conflate that threat with the long history of racism in America 
and uh, support for states' rights in America and support for segregation and that entire thing, as disgusting as I believe it is, that is very different. You know, many of the roots of this white terrorist nationalist threat actually began in the late 70s, early 1980s. And interestingly enough, it often sees it rear its roaring head during times when there is a Republican administration. Because what they start to see, it it really skyrocketed during Reagan, skyrocketing again now during Donald Trump, ironically, out of anger that the administration is not going far enough. And so this there's linkages, there's connections, there's similar at times, you know, ideological cross currents, particularly centered around racism. But I, it is so dangerous in this country where we start to see these two as exactly the same. And it actually leads to us underestimating the threat of white nationalism, terrorist organizations. And they're very different. I cannot agree more. And we see that with the jihadis. So if you look at the jihadi movement as it is today and how has manifested itself by Osama bin Laden, uh, it is rooted in what? There's an iceberg, right? And that threat is actually the tip of the iceberg. But it's an iceberg of a big debate in the Middle East and in the Muslim world about the role of religion. Then you have the Wahhabism of Saudi Arabia and how it was used as a soft power by the Saudis to counter Iran. Then you have groups like uh, the Muslim Brotherhood who have a totally different view about democracy and about you know, the wider participation in the political process. And all these things created a lot of historical narrative and ideological narratives and political narratives that made somebody like Osama bin Laden or Ayman Zawahiri say, you know what, the only way to move forward is violence. The only way to make a difference is violence. And that's exactly what we see. We have a lot of history of racism. You know, Europe has a history of anti-Semitism. We have the same thing here in the United States. So there's a lot of these ideological narratives, political narratives. And then these people saying, you know what, nothing is happening for us. We have to accelerate. Violence is the only way to protect our race. And these two things are very different. One lead into the other, but they are very different. It's also important to bring the conversation full circle and also to social media. Right now, and this is just a fact of the First Amendment, if someone wants to support a birther argument about President Obama, if someone wants to say that Brown versus Board of Education should be overturned or the 13th, 14th, or 15th Amendment should be overturned, they are disgusting human beings by every sense of the word, but that is protected First Amendment speech. If you look at the ways in which the leading social media organizations have established themselves, they said, well, that's protected speech on our platforms. Now, keep in mind that when it comes to Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, there's no such thing as constitutional protected speech on their platforms. You sign a code of conduct right when you sign up for their programs, and they could say tomorrow, all speech is not allowed. We are banning all speech. That would be bad business. And that's the reason why they don't do that, because they monetize speech. They don't protect speech. They monetize it. But what they have collectively agreed is that we do not allow for terrorist content on our platforms. But all the while, they have allowed for the base, Adamwaffen, Ram, all these organizations to use their platforms to speak. 
all the while because they are looking at terrorist designations as a list. They're looking to the State Department to say, what are our cues? And so interestingly, as we pushed and pushed and pushed and finally got the Russian imperial movement as a specially designated terrorist group, it was only then that the social media companies took down their their words. It was only then. Previously, that was speech. So we got to label these organizations as what they are, part and parcel of global terrorist organizations, not entities that are protected by First Amendment speech. One of the most interesting things I noticed in the course of preparing for this interview, for which I, I went to those those websites, uh, Adam Waffen and, and, and The Base and, uh, and others. I, I dove deep into the, the social media black hole that they inhabit. And not much of what I saw there surprised me. What really surprised me was the type of ads I started getting from the Trump campaign from Republican Senate candidates. I think there's there's a nexus there if those algorithms are, are any guide. And that really surprised me. Yeah, well, let me just say this, though. I'm not going to allow for this debate to become the Republicans that are using this for their politics and this and that, because then it, it becomes unnecessarily polarizing, okay? There is no reason why There's not enough of these people to shift the electoral map. There are enough of these people, though, to carry out multiple 9-11 attacks. And so let's label them as terrorists, okay? There's a bipartisan movement emerging in Congress calling for this. Let's just do it. We can't allow for this to devolve in terms of that this is a political thing. It's so refreshing, and I, I testified on this in Congress a couple of times, but it's so refreshing that I met a lot of members from the Republican Party and they came to me after the hearing and they were like, we never heard of this. We were really shocked. I want to thank you both for elevating this issue for not just your advocacy uh, on behalf of a critical subject, but your bravery, given that you have put yourself out front and now been targeted by some of these groups. Uh, We end every burn the boats with the same question, and I'll start with you, Max. What is the bravest burn the boats kind of decision you've ever been part of or had to make? Watching my guys in Afghanistan make split-second decisions about every day about whether they go left or right, whether they shoot or not was an effort in heroic bravery that I'm still astounded I was witness to and had the, the privilege to support. You know, we, we have so much to learn from the types of bravery our post-9-11 vets have showed day in and day out downrange. That, and we don't often acknowledge just the simple ones that they do every day. So uh, I would say that, that it's that. Thanks, Max. How about you, Ali? Having dinner with Max Rose. (laughs) (laughs) And they're coming after us, man. No, it's just like, you know what? We took an oath to defend this constitution and defend this great nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And uh, that oath does not stop with a paycheck. Well, thank you both. It's been an honor having you. Thanks again to Ali and Max for joining me. You can find Max on Twitter at at Rep Max Rose and Ali at at Ali underscore H underscore Sufan. Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Pete Buttigieg, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and until March, candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. 
He talks about his campaign and transitioning back home and into a pandemic. He also talks about patriotism, his hopes for the future of our country, and the need for America to rebuild trust. And we want to hear from you. What do you think we need to do as a country to rebuild trust? Trust in our government and institutions, but also in one another. Let us know by sending a comment on social media, leaving a message at 216-245-5461, or sending a voice memo to burntheboats at evergreenpodcasts.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Roll Hoffman. Our theme music is Climbing to Greatness by Cody Martin. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.